Thursday, June 21st, 2018. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. This week, we're going to celebrate the GI Bill. June marks the 74th anniversary of the GI Bill, and as we head into its 75th year of existence, we are going to discuss the history of the GI Bill, its evolution, the current iteration of the post-9-11 GI Bill, and its enhancement of the forever GI Bill. Before we get there, though, a couple admin notes or a couple uh, promotions, if you will. We are always looking for Veteran of the Day. If you have a veteran you'd like to, to nominate, to have recognized, whether that's yourself, a friend, a family member, a colleague, maybe it's a veteran you saw on TV that you think is really cool, uh, just send us basic service information, including occupation, years of service, branch, any deployments, tours, notable awards, uh, and a few photos to newmedia at va.gov, and we can move forward on honoring that veteran and having them recognized as our veteran of the day. Next week, June 28th, Explore VA is putting on a Facebook Live event at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the VA home loans and housing-related assistance. If you ha- Are you getting ready to buy a house? If you're interested in buying a house, if you are... Uh, if you have any housing-related assistance questions, check out this event. It's going to be hosted on the National Association of Realtors Facebook page. And there's going to be a lot of information on uh, both home loans and housing-related assistance. I've, I used a VA home loan when I bought my first house, and it was uh, such a valuable tool. I can't recommend it enough. And the more you know, the more informed you are going into that transaction your realtor and your lender should know what they need to know about the home loan uh, and how and how VA home loans work. But the more prepared you are, the more powerful you can be in that transaction. Uh, for more information, you can check out explore.va.gov slash events. That's explore.va.gov slash events. So this week, we're going to have a couple members from Student Veterans of America join us in the celebration of the GI Bill and discuss its history, its evolution, and its current iteration. I went over to SVA, and I sat down with Barrett Bogue, the Vice President for Public Relations and Chapter Engagement, and Lauren Augustine, the Vice President of Government Affairs. Now, you may recognize that last name. Lauren was on last year when we when the Forever GI Bill was freshly signed. We had a roundtable that talked about uh, the Forever GI Bill specifically. Uh, and then Lauren also joined us uh, not too long ago on the women's, Women Veterans Roundtable that we had Um discussing issues and priorities inside the uh, women veterans space. She joins us again along with Barrett uh, to provide their insight and their knowledge on uh, on the GI Bill and all in um, different aspects of it. There's some really cool information in here and some valuable information. Uh, if you know someone that's about to enter the military, you're going to want to tell them uh, about some of the things that you learned here about uh, about the GI Bill. So Barrett Bogue, Lauren Augustine, history and current states of the GI Bill. Enjoy. We grew up together. We believed in something bigger than ourselves. 
The military took me to one side of the world and her to the other. And even though she was always the strong one, when we caught up years later, I found out she had fallen on some hard times. It was her call to make, but doing it together made all the difference. For veterans who are homeless or on the brink of homelessness, call 877-424-3838. Um, by the way, something, you know, I just got back from Nevada and, um, you know, in, in Las Vegas, well, I guess in a lot of places, but the first place I noticed was Las Vegas hotels don't have a 13th floor, right? Right. right. And then I got into this elevator here and realized it didn't have a 13th floor yeah. and realized it's more common than I thought it was. I thought it was just sort of this, this unlucky thing that Vegas was, uh, was avoiding. But I've now noticed now that I've, I realized that like DC hotels and I've been to other places that like also don't have a marked 13th floor. Mm-hmm. Most DC hotels don't. I yeah. Just take a notice. Really? Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? That is. Yeah. The thing it's, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, we're here at SVA for a second time. Uh, on my right, Lauren Augustine, how are you? Doing well. How are you today? Good. Good. Um, welcome back. Yes, thanks yes. for having me back for, of course. A, for a third time here. Yeah, you're, you're doing great. You keep on getting brought up every time. And what's funny is this is, um, I guess this is the, the second person. So Mark Zemanski arranged the first two. Um, and then um, Chance uh, arranged mm-hmm. this one. Um, but your name keeps on getting brought up. Whenever whenever we have a, an education thing to talk about, your, uh, your name gets brought up. I don't know if that makes you feel good. I don't know if you're like, come on, leave me out of this. At some point, we're just going to have to become co-hosts, and I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll jump on board as an official co-host. That's right. Uh, oh, man, I'm not good at pop culture. Kelly Ripa and... Um, Regis. And Regis. Right? Yeah. Well... Yeah. N- no, it's not no, Regis. No, no, it's not Regis. It hasn't it been Regis for a while. No. He, not for a long time. Then it was Michael Strahan. Right. Yeah. And now Oh, he left, and that was a big Ryan deal. Seacrest. That's right. Seacrest. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, very well. Barrett, Barrett Bogue. Howdy. How you doing? Good. 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 This is the first time the audience has heard your voice. First time, Tim, and uh, you and I go go back a, a couple years now. Have been listening to the podcast, very much admire it, um, and and grateful to be here. Yeah, uh, the the audience at this point is uh, a little fam- is familiar with Lauren, and I'll, I'll I'll add a link to the first episode where you are the 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 women veterans when you did where you briefly talk about your service, but just so the audience is a little bit sure. more familiar with you, Barrett, uh, just briefly. Uh, your service, where you serve, stuff like that. Right. So my greatest claim to fame is that I'm a product of the GI Bill. And uh, I went to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So if you prick me, I bleed orange. I'm a volunteer fan through and through, an SEC football fan. Um, And while I was at Tennessee during my freshman year, I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. This would have been 1999. And through enlisting, I I got access to an older version of the GI Bill called the Montgomery GI Bill and used that to earn my my bachelor degree. My unit was in East Tennessee and we were a rifle company, just a bunch of, it wasn't integrated at the time, so it was all men. And we were just a bunch of Southern boys playing Marine. And it was great. And at the time, we were really concerned about China invading Taiwan. Like, we thought that was going to be the next flashpoint. 
And then 9-11 happened. And I, I remember exactly where I was. I was leaving the gym on campus. And uh, I walked back to uh, the the student building. And like up on the TVs, the first tower was smoking and on fire. And I was, was watching TV with students when the second plane hit and realized we're under attack. Like this is very serious and something's going to happen. And so uh, immediately my my perspective changed from it's not likely I'm going to be activated to at some point I'm going to be activated. And we were activated for Operation Iraqi Freedom 2. And so that was the, the uh, after the initial invasion, my unit was activated to go into Iraq and relieve the 82nd Airborne in al-Assad. And so I spent... As I like to say, I, as I like to say, I took a year off of school and, and spent it on active duty. And at that point, I had finished up my bachelor's degree in political science, and was starting my master's degree in higher ed administration. Spent some time in Iraq. We uh, we operated in um, Al Assad, hit Hadith Al Qaim, Fallujah, the Sunni Triangle. The Triangle Death, like before it was really known as the Triangle Death. And I was there when the insurgency really started coming to its own. And um, when IEDs became a kind of a, a household term. And came back and returned to the University of Tennessee and recognized that, hey, there's a lot of us coming back. And there are going to be even more coming back into higher education. And so in 2000. I really focused my my master's research on the programmatic needs for student veterans in higher ed. And this was really before an SVA. I was going to say that. That's, yeah, that was pre-SVA, pre-post-9-11 yeah. GI Bill, but uh, I knew that there was a need, and I saw that there was a need. And finished up my, my master's degree and had a very strong desire to go affect policy and change up in, up in D.C. and was selected into the, the Presidential Management Fellowship Program and uh, it was VA that found my resume through that program and called me up and said, hey, we are with the GI Bill office. And this whole time, I thought the GI Bill was like a DOD office. It never occurred to me that it was a separate and distinct oh, sure. office within VA. And they said, we love your background and we really want you to, to join us up here. And I, it was, I said, yes. I mean, how could I say no to something like that? So moved up here in 2007 and have really dedicated the past 10 years of my career to representing student veterans in higher ed and really advocating for them and increasing the services and, and the programs. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks for, uh, for joining us. Right on. Thank you. So in the, in the past in the past couple years, in the next couple years, um, you know, we're we're recognizing a lot of uh, anniversaries uh, revolving around World War II, right? So, um, the attacks on Pearl Harbor, 75th commemoration, was just a couple years ago. Uh, this year, yeah, 2016, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 74th commemoration of D-Day was this year. Um, you know, Battle of the Bull just is uh, um, is, a re- is should be around that same number, right? Yeah, it should. Yeah, um, and also on that number is the anniversary of the anniversary of the GI Bill, and I think what's really fascinating about the GI Bill is, for a lot of us, it seems like this 
fairly new product, right? Especially with the post 9-11 GI Bill being so revolutionary compared to its original product, I think we forget that education benefits go that far back for, for service members. Um, I'll let either one of you take the lead on on uh, on this first one, but um, you know, let's the impact that education benefits have on the military and why it was so important to ensure that service members were getting that benefit. So let's go back to the time the Revolutionary War. Like there have been student veterans in higher education um, ever since then. But if we really want to think about an inflection point in history where we realize that we should, as a nation, provide some sort of benefit post-service to support the transition from military to civilian life, we go back to the Bonus Army March in the early 20th century, where Congress passed a series of financial benefits for World War One veterans, but in their infinite wisdom, didn't make it effective until 20 years post-service. And that was to offset the cost. And so in a, a fit of passion advocacy, veterans marched on Washington. So even our advocacy for things like the Post-11 GI Bill, the Forever GI Bill, healthcare, you name it, that, that passion has been in existence in D.C. by our community for over a century. The Bonus Army marched on D.C. They camped out at the Washington Monument. They were eventually um, removed and to some extent violently removed. And it was a very, very negative stain on our country's history. And so after World War II, learning the lessons of the Bonus Army, it was Harry W. Harry Comary with the American Legion who had a strong desire to pass a comprehensive benefit package for returning service members to help them transition from military to civilian life. And not 20 years from now, but immediately post-service. One of those was, one of the parts of that package was the, the GI Bill, which at the time paid for the tuition and fees uh, at a public or private school. And so that what that arguably has led to is the growth in not only the number of students in higher education, but it, it arguably made the middle class today because millions of <clears throat> returning warriors came home, went into school, and some of these schools weren't even prepared to handle the influx, uh, the thousands of, of veterans coming back onto their campus. Uh, and many of the schools today, which enjoy large student bodies, do so because of, there were so many veterans coming back after World War II and going into school. They, they earned incredibly academically rigorous degrees. They became lawyers, doctors, uh, dentists, etc., and they built what is known as the the modern middle class today. And there was a study done by Congress in 1983 that looked at the effect that the GI Bill had on the the, the tax revenue for the country. And 
they what their research showed was that for every dollar the we paid out in GI Bill benefits, seven dollars was actually returned back to the United States through tax revenue. So it had a remarkable um, benefit for the country. And so that legacy certainly lives on today in the in our generation and in, in my in, in Lauren and, and I's generation of veterans going back into higher education. And it certainly played a role in um, in passing the, the post on 11 GI Bill and then a dec- almost a decade later, the forever GI Bill. Um, yeah, was was there any other anything else you wanted to add? I think, to that? yeah, Just sure. So, perspective? yeah, when I think about it, and I've thought about this quite a bit in the last few months, sort of leading up to the 74th anniversary and transitioning to higher education policy and sort of what that means to me and specifically looking at the World War II generation, everybody knows them as the greatest generation. And as a veteran, it's I'm quick to think of them as the greatest generation for what they did at war having served in Iraq, thinking about D-Day and thousands of people storming this beach where it's raining down on them. Like that is truly, that takes a great, great generation to be able to take on that that task. But I think what's overlooked is how they're the greatest generation post-service. You know, they were sort of this truly empowered generation of people who harnessed higher education, home ownership, entrepreneurship to really transform America into what we know today. And what I think is most exciting is building on that legacy is the post 9-11 generation who is using these education benefits at higher rates. And I can't wait to see what we do 30 years from now, like what, what the next generation looks back and says about us, harnessing the power of higher education today, harnessing home ownership, building new businesses and reimagining the American, American economy in a whole new way. I, I'm, it's really exciting to me to sort of look back and see what they were able to do and like, what can we accomplish having that, those shoulders to stand on is, is really exciting. No, that you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's a very interesting perspective for us to have because it's, it's very forward-looking. Like, we had returning service members using the new GI Bill in the 40s and 50s, but the economic impact really wasn't measured until the 80s. So we're talking about the 2040s or 50s before we really see what the generational impact of this is. And it's not just us as as individuals it's not just as veterans what makes the post 9-11 gi bill incredibly unique compared to previous iteriza- previous iterizations versions uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a much easier word yeah. is the post 9 gi bill was for the first time a benefit for the entire family and it's utilized certainly as a recruitment tool to incentivize people to join the military, but it's also used as a retention tool. And the Forever GI Bill is the same way. But part of the policy discussion that, that I was privy to when the post of GI Bill was being discussed was to what extent do we make this available to dependents? Um, we knew that we wanted to make it available to survivors of the fallen. That's just the right thing to do. But to what extent can I transfer that benefit to my, my family member, to, my, in my case, my daughter uh, or my wife? And so if you think about from that perspective, we're also enhancing the national workforce, just the, 
the public national workforce, the non-veteran workforce, because I think by today there's a, approximately 300,000 people who've had the GI Bill transferred to them who are not veterans. But somebody like somebody is going to have a baby born today and that child is going to get the GI Bill, but the effect of that isn't going to be seen for... And because it's a, a forever benefit, it's not going to be seen conceivably for two to three to maybe four decades from now. So we really are looking at a generational benefit for the entire family. Yeah, I think, you know, going back and talking about the, the greatest generation and, and how I think it's um, how I think it's it's so it's easy to accept that label. And by accept, I mean, like it's it's difficult to argue because the entire nation just kind of just they in their own ways went to war, right? Mm-hmm. People joined the military, they supported the government, they supported the military at home, the you know factories and stuff like that. And I think in the reason why I wanted to talk about that era and the creation of the education benefits, and then before we come to the current era, is I think there is a parallel between the World War II veterans who simply went to war because that's what the nation was doing. Granted, some were, some were drafted, some enlisted, you know, every, um, draft is something our generation still hasn't had to uh, go through. But I still think that post 9-11 um, and current conflict veterans can resonate with the greatest generation in that a lot of, a lot of us just served because we felt the call to serve and we felt that that's just what we're doing right now. Like our, our nation is going to war and, and we're going to go in support of it. And with that, we see a revolutionary step in education benefits going from the Montgomery GI Bill, which was great in its own right, uh, but clearly had plenty of improvements to be made. And a lot of those improvements were made through the uh, post 9-11 GI Bill. Um, as someone who experienced or used the Montgomery GI Bill, what, mm-hmm. what, you, you've used the post 9-11, right? Or, I did not. You didn't? I, I am a... Um sort of the oddball in the office and that I went to college before enlisting in the army. Oh, wow. Um, and so I actually don't have the GI Bill, but became the resident E4 that had gone to college and oh, wow. uh, sort of helped a lot of my uh, battle buddies understand college and the importance of going back yeah. to school and it just coming became a passion of mine to be involved in higher education. I'm a first generation college student and so fully believe in the, the power of higher education and love working on the issue, but actually never use the GI Bill. Oh, very well. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any intentions in passing it along or do you not ha- like you don't have it? I don't have it. So, so I did student loan repayment through the army gotcha. and you okay. have to waive the GI Bill unless you do multiple enlistments. Right. And I just did one. So okay. I said, I'm sort of the, uh, the odd man out yeah. in the higher education space here. No kidding. Okay. Uh, well then bear, we'll go back to you. Um, sure. having used the Montgomery yeah. and seen the creation of the post nine 11, um, what were what were what are a couple things that that are different about them that really made the post 9/11 as valuable as it was when uh, in its creation? So post 9/11 was born out of a groundswell uh, advocacy from my generation, and really, I think at a as a response to how long the the war in Afghanistan and, and Iraq had been had been happening. So I joined VA and. 2007 in January 2007 and I've always said that VA's implementation of the new GI Bill was the greatest story never told so the first week on the job we had a brand new Democratic 
Congress and President Bush was in office. The first assignment I ever had as a VA employee was this bill introduced in the Senate by then Senator Jim Webb, Jim Webb yeah. former Marine, right? Uh, Vietnam era veteran from Virginia, from Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Commonwealth. That's correct, right. As yeah. a matter of fact. And he said, I want a new GI bill for a new century, just like the World War II GI bill, because I know for a fact that this generation of veteran, it can be just as successful, if not more successful than the World War II generation. So this, it landed on my desk. The first thing that we had to do was analyze its impact. How much will this cost? Now let's put this in some context. When I joined VA, I like to call it, it was a really sleepy time because the Montgomery GI Bill, one of the things was it didn't pay that much. And I did use it to offset and defray some of the, the cost for higher ed, but we're only talking about a couple hundred dollars a month. And there were approximately 300,000 student veterans in school using the Montgomery GI Bill at the time. So <clears throat> we did a cost estimate for this proposed legislation and I remember distinctly sitting around a conference table and the team came back and said, this is going to cost $10 billion a year over 10 years. This is going to be $100 billion. And we all laughed and said, there's no way in hell that this thing is going to pass. And a year later, <laughs> it, it becomes law and we have 18 months to implement it. And it was really just a remarkable thing to see the advocacy grow within our community. And it, at one point, it became a, a topic of debate between then Senator Obama and then Senator McCain. They both had, at the time, on the campaign trail, competing versions of a new GI Bill. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that really raised uh, the public specter and and attention on the issue and then Senator Webb worked tirelessly to gather bipartisan support including the ability to transfer the GI Bill um, and some other changes that he had that he had made to it and it it passed it passed in the House and and it passed in the Senate and the biggest change really was how much it paid so today the, the post-limited GI Bill pays for uh, tuition and fees, uh, and it also provides a monthly housing allowance as well as a yearly stipend for books and supplies. So if we look at where the population was 10 years ago at 300,000, today it's more than tripled at 1.1 million, give or take. And it is, it's a, anywhere from 11 to 12 billion dollar a year program yeah um and so shows you what we know at the time but it really was a credit to our community in driving that discussion forward and saying hey we have what it takes and we 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 want a gi bill just like uh those who came before us enjoyed uh lauren can you Based off what he said, compare that to your experience with moving the forever GI Bill forward and what and 
um, similarity, something that's different 10 years later on working on this, this uh, iteration of it? Absolutely. The post 9-11 GI Bill and sort of the advocacy effort to get it there was really the case study we used on how to do forever GI Bill. Um, if it worked once, why, why not make it work twice sort of mentality. And I actually came into veteran advocacy several years after the post 9-11 GI Bill was passed. But to this day, it's still talked about as sort of this veteran service organization success story of how everybody came together, found the things that they could all agree on, and then coalesced around those things and really were just a united front to drive through this piece of legislation that is now this wonderful law. Uh, And so when we were looking at Forever GI Bill, I said, let's do the same thing, right? And so SVA sort of led those conversations and brought 60 plus people together to say, here are the things that are going on in veteran education. What can we all agree on? What can we all stand behind? And that's what became the Forever GI Bill. Um, And again, we sort of saw this united front of everybody. Everybody had a say in what was in the bill. Everybody had um was proud of what was in the bill and so then stood behind it and really you know wouldn't take no for an answer from congress to get it done last summer and what we have about a month between bill introduction and becoming law um and again it's just sort of you know um when we work together on things and can find common ground it's really remarkable what what we can all get done together in the veteran space and um it was exciting to see that happen a second time for the gi bill yeah bipartisan support in the veteran space seems to be common, right? Do you think that is objective to what is actually being introduced or do you think that there is pressure to support veteran legislation? It's it's a really interesting question because there was a, a moment in this effort to pass Forever GI Bill where we were not in agreement. Uh, primarily in... And by we, you mean VSOs? The, the VSOs, yeah. There was a disagreement. There was a disagreement on the best way to to pay for it. But we all still had that same North Star, which is we want to get to yes. We want to find a way to make this last a lifetime. So we're, I think we were all, I know for a fact, we were all motivated for the right reasons, but it was it was a disagreement over how we got there, and that's perfectly fine. And I had a colleague, some of that disagreement came out in public, and I had a colleague describe it as like a knife fight between VSOs, but I never, I never think that. I always kind of pictured it as a Nerf gun battle. Like, this is really... <laughs> We're just firing Nerf bullets at each other. It's yeah. not that big a deal. There's going to be a disagreement, but there's going to be a disagreement over the path that we take to get there. But truthfully, that disagreement was one of the better things that could have happened to us because what it meant was, and what it forced us to do as a team, was to go back with with Lauren and to go back with Will and, and our colleagues and say, okay, we couldn't get to yes that that time. So where can we identify compromises and priorities to get to yes this time so that we are unified and that we can get Congress on board and passing it? I think I'll add from a congressional standpoint, I've been lucky to really only um, have worked with the House and Senate Veterans Affairs Committees, which do enjoy um, a unique bipartisan environment. And I don't think that that I, I truly believe and will stand by that that is that is not just skin deep. The committee staffers have true respect for each other on on the issues that they all cover down on and will frequently meet and talk with each other and 
come to us and say, this is, you know, we've compromised on this. Is this something you guys can get behind? And it's kind of an example of what right looks like on Capitol Hill in terms of how they all work together and hats off to them because they really do a good job coming together um, as committee members and, and committee staffers to do what's best that they can get their parties to agree to. It's it's nice to watch. It's refreshing. Yeah. And the reason why I ask is I think it's important for um, for the American public and veterans themselves to know that uh, legislation that is being passed on behalf or in benefit of veterans is debated and argued about and fought over and in only because it needs to make sense for all parties, including the American taxpayer, including the veterans and their families that are benefiting from it. Right. Um, but in the end, it's an objectively a good bill and that's why it got through. Um, and I think that there is sometimes, um, you know, there's a false narrative that things happen in the veteran space simply because it has the word veteran on it. Um, and in most cases, that's simply not true. Not true at all. Uh, bills are, are hotly debated, respectfully debated, I should say, um, and thoroughly thought through and researched. I think a great example is the recent legislation from Chairman Arrington on the House Veterans Affairs uh, EO subcommittee dealing with the transition assistance program. It's a pretty comprehensive bill that overhauls quite a bit within the TAP program. And from the outside, it would look very easy. He introduces this big bill and okay, that's fine. But Behind that bill was a year of roundtables and discussions um, and meetings and bringing in stakeholders from the Department of Defense and Department of Labor and VSOs and the VA and really being thoughtful and, and deliberative about what was put into that bill. And the final product, yes, looks nice and pretty with a big bow on it, but there was a year, more than a year of work behind that. Yeah. And that might be the difference, I think, in the veteran spaces. Um, they really do their homework before the bill comes to the floor, before the bill comes to the committee so that there is this this great unified bipartisan effort to get something done, but there is a significant amount of work put in on the back end. Uh, it's hard to believe that we've already been chatting for half an hour. That's great. Isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. I Let's was, keep going. Yeah, <laughs> I dig it. The, um, the current GI Bill, and I remember when I was in, I was in boot camp, right? And uh, we had to elect to, to pay for the Montgomery GI Bill, right? So I, I yeah, was in... What year is this? What year was this? So I, I was in boot camp in May 2006 is when, okay. I, when I shipped off the boot camp. And I remember, what, month two? I mean, it's hard. Time, blend, <laughs> time blends together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember day one yeah. and I remember the last day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, we had to like fill out this form and elect to pay our $1,200 total uh, to receive the Montgomery dry bill. And I remember our drill instructors were like, check the box, right? Right. Like do it. If you don't want it, like it's $1,200. If for some reason you don't use it, that's not a lot of money. But if you do want to use it, you'll hate that you didn't. Right. And then I remember what, a couple years later, we had the opportunity to elect to, mm -hmm. uh, to get, I don't remember if, I don't remember if it was just a decision we had to make. I don't remember, remember if we had to like invest more in it. No, it was a, it was an irrevocable decision you made when you applied. Okay. You chose one over the other. Okay. There we go. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember, uh, not, we, it was still so new. None of us really knew anything right. about it. We just knew that it was this new iteration of the GI bill. And I think this, I think the one marketing in the marketing speak, the one thing that I think convinced everybody was, uh, housing allowance, right? Like that was yeah. when, when that came to like, well, of course I want, I want housing allowance. Right. Right. Um, 
with the forever GI Bill, what is what is um, what is the what is the cost to service member um, while they're in service, and then um, is there any election that they're going to have to make to receive it, or is it an automatic? Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sure. So this is one of the things that sort of. Um um, not misinformation, but maybe some confused information around the Forever GI Bill. Unlike the switch from Montgomery to post 9-11, which was truly a different bill and a different benefit, this actually is the same GI Bill. So this enhances the existing post 9-11 GI Bill. So there's no change in the cost. It remains free uh, with your service. And there's no difference in election. So you still right now have to choose between Montgomery and post 9-11. Um, but there's no Montgomery post 11 or Forever. Right. Forever is just an enhancement of the existing post 9-11 GI Bill. So um, great to put that information out there because yeah. it's certainly not a new benefit. It's just a, an expansion and a much needed uh, enhancement of the existing benefit. Okay. Um, what, is, what is the current, inv- is it 1200 or is it, did, it, did it get uh, increased? That's how long, I, how long it's been since I've been in, uh, in the military. So there's, you, for today, if you en- enlist or are in the military, you don't have to pay $1,200 or have your pay reduced in order to qualify okay. for the Forever GI Bill. And that's that's also the case with the Post-11 GI Bill okay. as well. There are some instances where recruits are still asked to pay into Montgomery GI Bill. Uh, but considering that program is about three generations behind in education benefits and what it covers and the fact that it... It doesn't last forever. Um, I don't recommend you you pay into it. Yeah. Um, however, you can you can choose to do so later on if you want to, but there is no pay reduction required sure. in order to qualify. Okay. There is not, and I think the only thing I'll add is an interesting thing is it's not just some recruits are still paying unnecessarily paying twelve hundred dollars in their first year for the Montgomery GI Bill. Most recruits are no, still paying, no that, even though the post nine eleven GI Bill is free with service. Uh, and so it's something that we continue to tackle here at SVAs. How do we address that? We meet with the recruiting commands to try to understand how do we get that number down because. It's really difficult to get that money back if you're not going to use the Montgomery GI Bill. And and as Barrett said, most people going into higher education, the vast majority, the post-9-11 GI Bill is a much better benefit for what they want out of higher education. And so they're sort of paying unnecessarily into this old benefit. And um, another thing to get out there, right? Yeah. Don't need to pay $1,200. Don't check that box anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody in the audience that uh, that has a a nephew or niece that's on, that on their way to, to basic training or boot camp, uh, let them know that uh, that is unnecessary. Is there is there any benefit to the Montgomery GI Bill? I mean, I'm sure that there's still benefits there, but any compelling reason why one would take that over post 9/11? Maybe in a rare instance, if you if you live in a in a zip code that uh, has a lower cost of living, and uh, the Montgomery GI Bill payment would be more and you 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 don't qualify for to have tuition and fees covered but it can't be that many people it has to yeah. be really really rare it's it's a very small percentage of people who would benefit montgomery over post 9-11 less than five percent um is is about what we we know of so to your point sort of these very very rural areas where the the cost might be better to use the montgomery but it's so small um and the benefit is so generous on post 9-11 that it you know, overwhelmingly, it makes sense to use the post 9-11 GI Bill. Yeah, yeah, again, if you choose that, if you choose Montgomery, you'll have 10 years to use it. Right. That's it. 
Yeah. So there's also that to take into consideration compared to the post 9-11 GI Bill or the forever GI Bill where you have your your, your whole life. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, in the show notes, I'll link to the roundtable we did on the forever GI Bill after mm-hmm. it was passed. But one thing I want to um, go over again this time is how it got its name. Yeah. Um, because uh, for anybody who maybe isn't interested in recalling that episode, well, I think we'll at least be interested in, in this part of it. Um, right. Because I think it was there was I remember there was talks about a new bill and then all of a sudden there was a hashtag forever GI bill and then all of a sudden that's how it be and then it all of a sudden it was being called that right is that literally how it's got its name was through a hashtag that's all you Barrett take yeah. it away so it was per a discussion I had with Will Hubbard our vice president for at the time vice president of government affairs and he was like all right I'm gonna do my Hubbard impression he's like we're gonna do GI bill 3.0 it's going to be great. It's going to be lifetime education benefits, et cetera. And he said, we're going to call it the permanent GI Bill. <laughs> and I said, that is the worst name ever. There's and a I, reason why he's in policy and not right, in marketing. Right. Yeah. He's like, hashtag permanent GI Bill. And I, I said, well, let me go back and just think about... <laughs> A name here, okay? <laughs> Something that's not permanent GI Bill. And just throughout my career, one of the one of the like most common pieces of feedback I received from veterans was I wish the GI Bill lasted longer because yeah. I had a family and I couldn't go to school. I was in a career and then I lost my job and I couldn't go back to school. Right. I even had members of my extended family say and express regret at not using the GI Bill in that 10 or 15 year window. Yeah. And I knew we were, we wanted something that would last a lifetime. Uh, but I also wanted something that would, that sounded aspirational, almost out of reach uh, because it was something that would inspire everybody and so i started thinking of what you know how do how do we say that and i said well nothing really lasts forever and i asked myself well why not why can't we just call it the forever gi bill so i came back to will and i came back to uh my my colleague derek and i said we're going to call it the forever gi bill and that's when the the hashtag campaign started uh, on SVA's channel, and and it it grew obviously well beyond what I had, had intended to to hear the the Secretary of Veterans Affairs and the the President and both committee leaderships and everybody within the community starting to use that hashtag. At one point, it was trending on Twitter. Yeah, it was it was great. It was great to see. So I like I like the name Forever GI Bill and and uh, certainly call it that uh, as often as I can. But that that's their history behind it. So thank God we didn't have the permanent GI Bill. Like <laughs> permanent GI Bill, right? Not quite the ring to it. Yeah. No, it doesn't have. No, not at all. It doesn't at all. Um, I was thinking uh, when you sent me some of the bullet points on uh, we wanted to go over. I was like, what else could it have been called? And like other synonyms for forever or things right. that, 
are misleading on what exactly because I'll say like Infinity GI Bill makes it sound like it's a never end <laughs> like uh, a never like right. you could go to school right. for forever you know like uh, yeah but Forever GI Bill um, I think I think was not only a really great hashtag campaign uh, but really is uh, really does lead um, it emphasizes the leading benefit on yeah um, yeah because well, and I, I didn't want a name that was tied into a wartime era because that's what yeah. always dated previous iterations of the gi bill and even how we refer to them today post 9 11 vietnam korean war era world war ii era gi bill yeah we don't we don't want that anymore we want the forever gi bill to be exactly that sure a forever benefit that we will modify uh, as the public demands and as veterans desire throughout their lives, but it's called the Forever GI Bill for a reason. It's not tied into a wartime service, and it's not going to be a cost of war. It's going to be a cost and benefit of service to your country. So let's 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 wrap this up with sure. um, with a couple of the stronger points in or maybe that's other than it lasting, right? Like, like other than the ten-year cap not being on it, but whatever the cap was for the fifteen for the post nine eleven, um, what's what's maybe your favorite part of the G, the Forever GI Bill? What's what's maybe some speak in there that either isn't getting um, uh, like I know it it, it benefits um, survivors and sure. family members yeah. more. And I know there's a little. I'm sure there's a couple more lines of code in there somewhere that maybe we're not familiar with. So. Um, what's what's something that you think is really valuable in this in the Forever GI Bill, or where you think where you think we're going to see the strongest impact when it's implemented? It's a good question. You can answer that question however you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I appreciate it. So there are lots of components and improvements to the Forever GI Bill, um, but I I do I want to go back to the fact that it lasts a lifetime because. It's going to be a while before we understand that impact. And I did it and was involved with it and led it for those who are at home raising a family and they say, I can't go to school right now, but I know I want to later on. And that could be 18 years from today. But the GI Bill is still going to be there for them. Or the the service member who's listening right now and transitions into a full-time career right out of the military. They go into the you know, the some sort of service sector, et cetera, and they work an entire career and they give their life to this company and then they're laid off. And I've I, this has happened because I've I've had veterans come to me uh who have been laid off and said, I, I wanted nothing more than to go back to school after I got laid off because I, I wanted to improve myself and go into a different industry. But the GI Bill wasn't there for them. It is today. And so that person who gives 20, 30 years of their life to a company and then for whatever unfortunate reason um, is let go, they know and have confidence that the GI Bill and higher education is going to be there for them. And I'm encouraged by that because what, what our research has shown is that today's student veterans are the best students in higher ed. So if you're, if you're listening and you're wondering, do I have what it takes to go into higher ed? Should, is it okay to wait to go into higher ed? 
The answer to both of those is yes, you have what it takes to succeed in higher ed, especially compared to your peers. You're more likely to graduate, to have a higher GPA, to earn an academically rigorous degree. Is it okay to wait? Sure. If you've got family commitments, if you're working in a, in a uh, high demand industry, that's perfectly fine. Um, the Forever GI Bill now affords you that opportunity. And rest assured, when you go back to school, you're going to be very successful. And SVA is here to help. By all means, get plugged into an SVA chapter because what we know and what we've seen is that if you go back to school or if you go to school for the first time and you get plugged into an SVA chapter, if you get plugged into that peer network, you are much more likely to graduate. So if you're serious about school and graduating, by all means, join an SVA chapter as well. So that's what I would go back to is really the forever component of it, because we're not going to see the effect of that for maybe a a generation. Yeah, I think um, I remember the first interview I did with Jared uh, Mm -hmm. way back when the podcast first started. Um, He said that what he said that one of the biggest predictors to a student's success, veteran or not, um, a student's success is a friend on campus. Right. And I think that it's, that's why it's important to reach out to student veterans because they are more likely to not look for a friend on campus because they're independent. They probably have a home life. We had plenty of veterans that were completely content with showing up for classes and then just leaving. Um, and those those student veterans are successful in their own right. But it's always important to invite people into the chapter, into the group, into events, because one of the biggest predictors for success on campus is having a friend. Um, and the more we can cultivate that, uh, the better. I'm sure there's at least one person in the audience who's wondering, and I'm curious as well, is this retroactive to people who have already expired their GI Bill benefits? So someone who's run out of post 9-11 GI Bill benefit, like, no. No, so it doesn't make any change to the months of eligibility that you have under post 9-11 GI Bill. What is retroactive, though, is if you served, if you separated from the military after 2013, yeah. uh, the forever aspect does apply to you. So even if you wanted to, if, say you separated in 2014, if you wanted to wait 20 years to use your post 9-11 GI Bill benefits, you would be eligible to do that. You'd still have that same month allotment um, but you'd be able to to wait to use them if you've used up all of your months no it doesn't it doesn't sort of give you more months to use okay um your thought or your your um your opinion on or your um you know what i'm asking for here yeah Yeah. so i've got (laughs) (laughs) um i've got a an sva focused question or answer not question i was gonna say oh Um, i'm I'm fielding questions now okay we're gonna switch the roles here for a second um so i have an sva focused answer and then also one that's sort of a policy nerdy answer that somebody who's worked in this space for a while i found very fun about it so from an sva standpoint i think that the one-year extension for stem degrees is really important for student veterans and something that people i think will be surprised to see how excited people are to utilize that stem fields is in the top three majors pursued by student veterans and so it's something that I think is a great need for those out there on campus and I think it'll help empower people to pursue STEM degrees uh, and help empower people to pursue those degrees without taking on any greater debt than they would have if they were pursuing a liberal arts or humanitarian degree. So I think that's exciting from a a student veteran standpoint. From the policy nerd in me standpoint, um, I love, absolutely love the amount of things, small technical things that the Forever GI Bill fixes in the post 9-11 GI Bill. 
there's a lot of things that were unintentionally done, like the Purple Heart recipients not receiving the full GI Bill, yeah. some Fry scholarship um, oversights, these weird technical reservist codes that weren't included, and these small things that weren't done with any sort of malicious intent. But when you're working on this big, massive bill, things are going to be overlooked or forgotten, even after you've gone through the thing with the fine tooth comb 90 times. And so being able to go back and see those things and fix them and know that thousands of people's lives are going to be improved and impacted by this small adding adding a code to the bill 12304b to a bill or making all purple heart recipients have the full GI bill that's just so much fun from a nerdy yeah. policy standpoint and I don't think anybody else would really be jazzed about that but I like it no I, th- I think that's actually really cool because of something something we all painfully know here in DC and and um, you know other people outside here may I mean, this is law, right? We're talking about things that are being passed into law. And so when when there's a missing link or there's something written in it that doesn't quite get the benefit to somebody, no one can make the value-based decision to just award that benefit to that right. person, right? It's like the right. reservist code, stuff like that. Like, it's literally law, and that's you know that's how we have to operate. And so I think we all should nerd out on the fact that those <laughs> things are, are improving, um, and that those you know those are big those are big moments for the people that are impacted. That's right. Um, final question: the next evolution of education benefits, um, whether that's happening sooner or later, um, whatever you're willing or care to uh, divulge, what's What's being molded about in the veteran space, the education space on um, what what else we can do, whether it's through legislation or, or just through, um, you know, the community in general? What are we doing to benefit student veterans? So in terms of the next iteration and... I'll, I mean, I, th- I think you'd probably... Sure, I was going to say, I wrote down notes for this question. Yeah. Are you ready, ready <laughs> I mean, for I've this got question? So, I've got something I want to offer just in terms of... Sure. So I I believe higher ed in general is really ripe for disruption. And I don't know what that's going to look like just in terms of will there be as many college, physical college campuses today, or excuse me, tomorrow as, as there are today. Um how important is online learning and and uh, the modalities to 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 tomorrow's community and to what extent will federal policy and education benefits keep up with with learning preferences I'm personally excited to see what the future holds and I know SVA is going to be in the forefront of that and advocating for that but it's a really interesting time to be in higher ed and understanding that learning, especially within with our generation and, and, and the one behind us and my daughter's generation, is going to look really, really different. Yeah. So I'm curious how the GI Bill is going to respond to that. But in terms of specific policy issues that we're going for and whatnot... I'm Lauren's ready. ready. Yeah. Give I'm it ready. to us. I've got my notes. So there's sort of two fronts to this. We've got the VA, and then as Barrett spoke to, we have higher education uh, writ large. So from the VA, I think we're at a standpoint where 
thanks to the post 9-11 GI Bill, thanks to Forever GI Bill, we've taken care of some of these bigger issues that we're facing student veterans. And we have the opportunity now to really refine the conversation about VA education benefits. A great example of that is looking at work study and how can we grow work study to better empower student veterans and their futures and the communities that they're in uh, to meet the realities of what they're doing. So that's one example. I think we also have a really unique opportunity, again, now that we've sort of focused on some of the larger issues in VA education, to figure out how do we better integrate campus life and the VA to empower students across the board. An example of that is, um, you know, the Mission Act just passed. I'm sure you've talked about that on this podcast already, but um, I how- haven't yet, actually. Oh, yeah. my bad. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Spoiler that's, alert. That's a good teaser um, to what may be coming next. Yeah, that's um, that's, that's new. That's uh, that's that's fresh off. The ink's barely is. dry on that. That's one. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, so 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 how do we better integrate campus life with the VA? A great example of that is. Almost every campus, if not all campuses, have a healthcare center or a healthcare system for their students to use. Now that the VA has figured out the future of their community care programs, how do we get campus health centers to be integrated with the VA healthcare system so student veterans can easily access healthcare on campus while still being integrated with VA healthcare? That's brilliant. Um, Sort of looking at some of those that things. That would be huge. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and that's just one example, right? You could also look at suicide prevention efforts yeah. um, and other things like that where campuses are doing that work already and the VA is doing that work already. And we've got this population of students who are, who are you know, sort of in both camps. And how do we better integrate those two, those two networks to best serve student veterans and then learn best practices to serve all students or all Americans? I think we, there's a lot of opportunity there that we haven't, that we're just starting to think through and, and touch. And then to build on what Barrett said, a lot of the future of higher education and student veterans is actually gonna be focused not just on the VA, but higher education as a community across the board. I think it's we're quick to forget that student veterans are students first. Um, and so some of the things coming at us right now, higher education reauthorization, that's the bill that sort of um, dominates how higher education functions in the federal space across the board. There's a huge conversation going on right now about what the future of higher education looks like. And a lot of that will be answered in future and current iterations of the Higher Education Act. And in that, we have a lot to look at with innovative learning, sort of building on what Barrett was saying, that Mm -hmm. the future of higher education is much different than what we know right now and what we all went through in in college. And so how do we as advocates really advocate for a strong, innovative learning model that serves veterans, serves students, but also produces quality education outcomes. And I think that's really the unanswered question in higher education right now and something that everybody's eager to figure out. And and I, that's definitely going to be a conversation we hear for years to come. Yeah. Um, something that just came to mind and I'm curious about, um, as, as the, the demand for higher education continues to grow and that, and we see a generation that is going to be expected to have a master's degree in the same way we were expected to have a bachelor's degree. Um, how will education benefits evolve around that, do you think? And giving veterans maybe um, a better opportunity to um, extend. Now, some veterans that were really on top of it did a good job of getting the BA to MA program so they could get both of them in their, in their GI Bill benefits or the, you know, I know plenty of guys that got their two years done while they're on active so they could do two and two when they got out. Um, but a lot of veterans like myself 
had to use all of our GI Bill benefits to get mm-hmm. our bachelor's and are sort sure. of left shrugging like I don't know what to do for my master's. Um, what do you think that might look like? Just, you know. Uh, Speculative. Just, speculatively. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that word? That word. So if anything, the the future is going to be in flexibility. And I, our community identifies very much with that as a non-traditional student community, we are more likely to be older, married with a part-time or full-time job. So flexibility is really critical to us. And the traditional path that you just mentioned, bachelor to, to master's, may not be the preferred path anymore. And, and certainly when it comes to an educated workforce, that may not be what the industry wants anymore. And so I could envision uh, a future where the GI Bill doesn't just incentivize and pay for you to go into higher ed, into a brick and mortar school, but into like a a MOOC, like a massively open online course um, or Khan Academy or or something to that effect. Um, Anything that would support your educational journey and the flexible path therein that you would want to go. It would t- it's going to take a while to get there, and we would want to see and, and, and have a, a groundswell of support, but just in understanding how learning is done, practically, I, I think it's fair to say that learning on demand is going to be far preferred than, than learning in the classroom, and I, I'm interested to see if the GI Bill would be able to respond to that yeah nice little plug for Khan Academy there thank you yeah <laughs> Lauren I think um one of the things and I, I spoke to this a little bit earlier this the stem extension that's in the forever GI Bill I think is an example of what the future of education benefits look like you know advocates and the VA and Congress recognized that stem degrees on average take five years and the current benefits didn't allow for that that fifth year and so adjusting the benefits for those who are pursuing those degrees uh, sort of spoke to the realities of, of modern higher education but I think beyond that so I think that's a good case like we should we should study that as as that develops and is implemented next year. What does that look like in a few years? Is it successful? Is that something that we should look at expanding to master's degrees for certain fields or or other fields that require a longer length of study? But I also think that this is something uh, to Baird's point that there's a lot of room for growth and change in higher education across the board to address this change in necessity for what types of degrees and um, levels of degrees that are required now that will make it easier for all students, non-traditional in particular, to achieve those needed degrees. Uh, you know, going back to innovative learning, um, distance learning, there's so much there to study and learn and grow that I think that will be the solution, not necessarily you know, allowing people to go longer at brick and mortar, although that's always going to be an option. Sure. Um, but it I is. think that, that that's the future is how do we innovate what we think of as benefits and what yeah. we think of as education um, to address that need. Wonderful. Lauren, three for three on on podcasts. Done. Yeah. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure this was called, I think this might have even still, still been called This Week at VA on the first one you're on. I, I believe e- it was. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think it, it got the name Born the Battle shortly after the, the first round table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Barry, your, your debut was fantastic, sir. Thank you. I, you know, one day I hope to be as popular as Lauren Augustine and, and look on this as the first of at least three appearances. Yeah. Look, I host a show. I don't think I'm as popular as Lauren Augustine is on this show. <laughs> 
Um, but no, it's it's really it's important to me to collaborate with SVA and all opportunities that we get because I think um, you know if you were if you were to list all of the benefits that VA provides that 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 impact veterans and their families and their lives. One A would be healthcare, and I think one B is education. Mm. And I think they're that close together because so many veterans like myself didn't think about enrolling in VA healthcare, but knew for certain that we were going to use our education benefits. You know, that was in my last when I was in uh, when I was in Lima, Peru. Not even then, when I was in Moscow, Russia, so I was still even like a year, a little over a year from getting out, my first sergeant sat me down and made sure that I had a plan for education when I got out. Uh, I was obviously encouraged to use healthcare if if I needed it, but he wanted to make sure I knew exactly mm. what what I was hoping to do with education when I got out, because um, they knew the the importance of it. So um, I always appreciate SVA uh, collaborating, and um, but it's always fun talking not only to the SVA staff but uh, the student veterans in the field as well. And um, do you want to plug uh, NatCon? Is it too early for for a NatCon? It's plug? never too early to plug NatCon. Yeah, man. I'm Hashtag hoping to be there. NatCon 2019. It's going to be in Orlando, Florida. At Disney World, it's going to be the first week of January. Registration is going to open up early fall. Okay. So visit studentveterans.org to, to learn more. Um, last year was the largest NatCon to date with around 2,000 attendees. And I want to blow that record up again <laughs> this year. So it again, it's, it's never too early. It's a fantastic time for SVA chapter members to come together, to network, to compare best practices, to learn from each other, also to get access to thought leaders, and then finally to meet really cool people like you, Tim. Yes, um, thank and you. And for, for many of us, like you said, like our first introduction to VA is through the education benefits. Yeah. It's not through the hospital side, it's through the education side. And so VA has historically, and the education side of VA historically represented very well at, at NACCON. But we also want the, the cemetery side, loan guarantee, healthcare side, we also want them and expect them to be at NACCON this year so our community can learn more about all the great things that VA does. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren Barrett, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I was a gunner's mate. Tonkin Golf. Logistics. Ramstein. Medic. Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry. Camp Pendleton. Or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. If you have any questions about the GI Bill, you can go to gibill.va.gov and you can apply for benefits and learn more about the post 9-11 GI Bill, including the Yellow Ribbon Program. If you have any questions about SVA, maybe you're interested in the in NatCon that Barrett was talking about there at the end, go to studentveterans.org. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for Salvador Lara, Service, U.S. Army, rank of Private First Class, Division Company L, 180th Infantry, 
Conflict is World War II, Year of Honor, 1944. Citation reads, PSC Salvador Lara was bestowed the Medal of Honor to recognize his valorous actions in Aprilia, Italy, May 27 to 28, 1944. During the fight, May 27, he aggressively led his rifle squad in neutralizing multiple enemy strongpoints and inflicting large numbers of casualty on the enemy. The next morning, his companies resumed the attack. Lara sustained a severe leg wound but did not stop to receive first aid. Lara continued his exemplary performance until he captured his objective. We honor his service. That does it for this week's episode. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen. You can follow us on Twitter at DEPT Vet Affairs for more stories from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.